This episode of StoryCon Presents is sponsored by JanusPointPress.com. Watch out for wormholes. Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 330. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited and honored to have with us the award-winning editor and scholar of International Journal of Comic Art and the Comics Research Bibliography, Mike Rohde. Mike. So, so, Mike, we've been bantering back and forth for 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 a few months, trying, you know, scheduling you to come on the show, and right. I got to say, you have a sea of work on your research and your outright passion for cartoons and comics and the history and where they stand. And how did your passion for the the scholar scholarly work and history of cartoons and, and comics kind of take shape for you so when i was a kid my parents got married young i was a don't go to vietnam baby I have exemptions for children my dad would buy comics and have them around the house they had mad they had the peanuts paperbacks they had archies they had supermans so there were always comics and cartoons around the house and that was back in the golden day of paper, paperbacks reprinting stuff so you know you find andy cap or bc they were all over the place and um, when I was about five or six, my cousin got married to a man named uh, Edward Violante. She was my godmother, so we were fairly close, even though you know I was just a little kid. And he gave me stacks of old Marvel. <laughs> by old, I mean they were like five or seven years old by that point. So that got me into the DC um, science fiction stuff and the Marvel early Marvel Universe stuff. So when I'd go over to his house, he'd let me read the stuff he kept. <laughs> but the first edition first appearance of the green goblin in spider-man and i read it to death it's not worth anything now. but you know it off my whole life uh and he passed away this year which is why i'm mentioning him by name so um but anyway so i had my interests i made my friends uh i would bop around stuff but with the coming of the internet all of a sudden there were a bunch of listservs that started and some of the ones I joined were on alternative comics. And a bunch of guys on that ended up coming down to Washington for the first International Comic Arts Festival, which was sponsored French Embassy. And um, Georgetown University, I think. Were the, yeah, they were the two in the beginning. And uh, so I met a bunch of people that are uh, the elder statements and statesmen in comics that came in now and got to know them. I mean, I knew them online. But when they came down, you know, it was like, oh, you're letting people we don't actually know sleep in the basement, honey. I'm like, it'll be fine. I know I'm electronic, but they're good guys. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got started. Um, they are all real academics. I just play one in the evenings on YouTube. So a lot of people have read comic books and, and cartoons for the sake of the story or for the sake of the humor. At what point did you start looking at it from a perspective of form and function and looking at it from the lens of past what the surface level of what comics and cartoons were. 
So when I was a kid, like I said, I'd gotten those older comics, and that was from a world that was gone. And at the time, there was no way to recreate that world or find that stuff. Um, this is going to sound weird to people, but there were like maybe five books about comics. And uh, Jules Pfeiffer's The Great Superheroes or Great Comic Book Superheroes was the only one that even reprinted some of that stuff. There were no Marvel DC reprint programs or anything. So I used to get the Overstreet Price Guide and read through that and try to figure out what the history of comics was. Um, and I've always been more interested in the history rather than necessarily um, the mechanics. A lot of my friends that come out of English departments are more interested in the mechanics. I'm more interested business and how things evolved and why things are successful and how you can actually define comics. That's, I mean, an ongoing debate that is mm. settled and it's absolutely ridiculous debate, but kind of, you know, those are the types of things that interest me. And um, I got lucky being here in DC because you could meet a lot of people when they would come through town and um, that international comics art festival continued on. So I knew some of the people and, um, a groundbreaking professor in the field, John Lent, uh, came to one and was starting a new journal, the International Journal of Comic Art. By that time, I'd been working um, in the medical history archives field for a while. So I'd written exhibits and stuff like that. And so I talked to him about, um, he asked me if I wanted to be involved. So I talked to him about setting up an exhibit review column for the journal. So that's how that side of my academic career started rolling. While at the same time, I was also writing some articles about um, medicine in the museum collection. Like during World War II, um, they used cartoonists to warn against the danger of VD. And I had some of the microfilm printouts of the posters that they would mail overseas. They would mail microfilm overseas because, you know, it cost almost mm -hmm. nothing. So, you know, I was looking into them and seeing that they had um, some real big name cartoonists. So I wrote a few articles for Hogan's Alley and stuff like that. And that's kind of how things sort of started in the academic life. So you did mention before is like, what, what is it, what defines the word comic? So right. what is your definition of that then? I sort of default down to um, a mixture of things. Uh, Wills Eisner's sequential art is good, but on the other hand, I think that gag cartoons are comics and some other people like, Bob Harvey would disagree with that, although I feel there's an implied action before and after that can make it uh, viewed sequential. I think it's a non-realistic style of drawing. I won't say it's getting any harder to design, this describe, but you know we're seeing things pop up again, like illustrated novels, like Wimpy Kid. And there were cartoons who were illustrating those for Dickens in the 19th century. And those are back to being comics again. Uh, I think, you know, just like Alice in Wonderland was illustrated by a cartoonist and Wimpy Kid is illustrated, written and illustrated by a cartoonist. Um, Jeff Kinney started as a, a cartoonist for the University of Maryland newspaper around here. So, um, so the definitional thing, I try not to let it bog me down too much, except for when it comes to working on the bibliography, <laughs> then sometimes it gets me, where do I put this person? Where do I put this? And so yeah, so talk to us a little bit about the the comics research bibliography. So the 2022 ebook edition is available at on the Internet Archive, correct? Yeah, and some of the earlier ones are too. Um, so I don't actually remember this. Oh, look at that! Uh, 
my friend John Lantu, we eventually merged our projects, uh, presented a paper um, at the first proto ICAF, which was a Georgetown manga festival talking about his bibliographies. And he had done what eventually became a 10 volume set. And let me see if I can wow. pull without knocking everything off over here. Um, no, I can't. Sorry. Um, and um, I had forgotten about that, but I was a member of the Grand Comics Database, which is more oh. of, a, of indexing individual comics. And one guy on that, um, John Bulow, said, hey, we should do this for articles about comics, too. And I was the only one who took him up. So John <laughs> did it his um, university website for about 10 years before his career really took him away from it. And so John and I merged our projects, and I took his format, and um, I expanded all the time. But you can see, um, uh, let's see, where are your comic books there? Yeah, so those are basically the headings John came up with over a 15-year period of doing his bibliographies. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of a way to get out the collecting urge, because I can collect citations instead of uh, actually collecting paper. And... Uh, I like to think it's helpful because, you know, if you just put in the word fantagraphics online, you're going to get, I think I, the last time I looked, it was well over a million hits. Um, yeah. Go here and you look up fantagraphics. There's a bunch of linked articles you can click directly to to do your research, um, which is why eventually I started moving it online. Um, we had tried to just make it a print thing. Um, Originally, and John published an issue of the International Journal of Comic Art dedicated to one of the versions. But um, realistically, with so many um, sources migrating to the web, as well as new sources, such as this podcast, which gets listed in it, um, I'm, I guess it's a podcast, I guess, um, YouTube videos, um, all kinds of stuff that gets listed in it now that um, it's much easier to, I mean, they... You're not going to buy the Barney Smith CD set, so <laughs> maybe eventually, <laughs> but right now, probably not. So a lot of the stuff just links live these days to the actual mm -hmm. source. Um, and it's a never-ending rabbit hole. Like today, I was doing a little bit before we set up here, and um, YouTube tossed up a Jim Lee drawing recommendation. So I'm like, all right, I'll include that. And then it tossed up like 40 Jim Lee drawing recommendations. <laughs> So one of them is going in, you know, it'd be nice to have time and mental bandwidth to add them all someday, but I don't see that happening. But artificial intelligence will maybe put this out of business. But in the meantime, um, a guy named Tony Rose volunteered to start helping start helping me this year when I was talking about this online. And he's another ex-Grand uh, Comics database guy. So I find this patience. He puts them in the format and emails them back to me, and then I drop them into this document um that you see on the screen so it's you know i'm not saying it's healthy but it keeps me busy and so i'm really curious because of someone that's been basically seeing how cartoons and comics started in the beginning of the 20th century and even near the end of the 18th like the 19th century it just seems as though from 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 the passive viewer that there's just been a deluge of comics lately through web comics and yeah. and manga. Um, how do you keep up with that from a research perspective and like just someone that actually like yeah. catalogs? Honestly, 
Yeah, honestly, you don't. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I would love to. I have sources I go to regularly. Um, so you, I have about 10 subscriptions, 15 subscriptions on YouTube, including you and a, a several other sites, the CXC conference, the Small Press Expo. So I put those in regularly because I know you get, you're doing interviews. And I consider that a primary source. And CXC, you know, they have panels of academics. So I consider that a primary source. So I tend to lean towards primary sources. Hmm. Into the comics journal site, I'll include interviews or in-depth articles about somebody and some reviews, depending on how specialized it is. I'm going to the beat with Heidi McDonald's site. Um, if it's a puff piece, I don't include it. I include interviews. I include the business stuff about, you know, like today she has an article about somebody starting up another new comics reading platform on web. So I include those because it traces the business and the technology. So those are my uh, uh, general cutoff points. Um, going backwards in time, um, I pick up what I can, uh, but I literally have tens of thousands of pages of unprocessed citations and I dumped an entire year on Tony. I think I gave him 15 earlier this year. So we'll see when he comes back with that. But I do date comics back a bit further over my shoulder on this side. Whoops, it's really tough. So that's a Dolmier right over my shoulder um, that takes us into the 1870s. And above it is a Thomas Rowlandson from the 18th century, um, fun of the reign of George III, something happening in the reign of George III. So I tend to date comics from um, British political prints and then French. Um, Newspapers. Domier appeared in French newspapers. And if you find a Domier original, it's just been cut out of the newspaper. It's like cutting Dilbert and then saving it for 200 years. Watch out for wormholes because a good book is a wormhole, whether it's paper or pixels. Explore our artist books and chat books, including the winning 2022 Chautauqua Janus Prize lecture at JanusPointPress.com and sign up for news of our upcoming sci-fi sensual and literary collection, Event Horizon. This short story collection on cosmic decisions and their impact is written by award-winning author, Stephanie Nina Pizzarillos, and features comics, prose, photography, and original canvas work by an array of exciting artists. Visit JanicePointPress.com. One of the things when you when you when you're talking to somebody about the history of comics is like, what are uh, like two or three facts that you want to surprise people about that they might not know about cartoons or comics? I have never remotely considered that question. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, okay, one I do use is that comic strip artists used to be millionaires. It's a way to make it big on your own talent in the 1920s and 1930s. And when you got big, you got big. Hmm. Uh, a little bit of the holdovers into the late 20th century with Garfield. Hmm. Jim Davis had his own jet. And Bill Watterson could have had his own jet. And Charles Schultz had his own hockey rink. But dead in the water now. But at the time, in the 20s, those people were like written up in the newspapers as the nouveau riche and anybody could do it because you know basically it just took you paper and ink yeah. 
and finding the platform, of course. You had to find the newspapers to get, or the newspapers. Right. Newspapers would run a lot of original material too. A lot of people talk about how uh, the collapse of the newspaper industry mm-hmm. also had a very negative effect on cartoonists as well. It did, and it does. The uh, associate mm-hmm. editorial cartoonist is probably the shrinking, fa- shrinking the fastest. And you see a lot of the uh, alt cartoonists, they lost their platforms um, about 10 years ago. Their newspapers all disappeared. So I fund a lot of them on Patreon, like Jen Sorensen and Tom Tomorrow and Ruben Bowling. Now it's coming for the political cartoonists. And I fund some of them too, uh, Steve Brodner and a few others. And now it's coming for the comic strip people. Australia's newspapers no longer publish comic strips. They all just last month. In America, what we're seeing this year is the newspaper consolidation has led to the consolidation of the packages that comics, the comics packages that some big chain will offer to its papers. So a lot of um, cartoonists lost that too, because it's like Prince Valiant got dropped out. You know, it's like if you live in East Podunk, they're, New corporate overlords do not offer them the option of buying, running Prince Valiant. Hmm. Uh, lovely, a lovely strip these days, even though it shrunk to almost nothing. But, right. but it's interesting seeing uh, King Features started pushing back hard last month and this month. And uh, the Daily Cartoonist, which is another blog I like a lot, uh, DD Dag is tracked that they've, I think, launched five strips into print this year, including yeah. Revival. Flash Gordon, which is now running in my local Washington Post, which I did not read today because the Post writers are on strike. For those that are listening to this or watching this and say, you know, Mike, this is good. I I want to read. I don't have a local paper anymore. Where can I actually reach out and read a Beetle Bailey or a, mm-hmm. or, a, or a BC? Where, where would you recommend right. people if they, where can they access comic strips right now? So uh, both major syndicates that are left, um, Andrews McMeal runs Go Comics and um, King Features Syndicates runs the Comics Kingdom. And they're both they're both quite good. Um, or if you decide you want to support a newspaper like the Washington Post, even though they're on strike today, um, if you subscribe to them, you get access to their comics page, which probably has about 100 strips on it. Uh, on their online one. So um, still ways to do it. And um you know, that's if you like your traditional comic strip. If you like web comics, you can sign up for um, various people will email you their web comic for free, um, like Dave Kellett does Sheldon and uh, another one. And uh, in a different generation, instead of a web cartoonist, he would have definitely been one of those go getting comic strip guys. He does mm-hmm. the three or four panel gag with children on one strip, Sheldon, and then he does. Uh, an eight panel science fiction strip once a week, which would have been perfect for a Sunday newspaper. So right. out there, you just have to poke around a little bit. In some ways it's easier to find than ever. It just makes its creators less money than ever. Right. And, and so where, where do you see uh, looking at uh, the, the projection? What's your, the old adage of, if you don't learn your history, you're doomed to repeat it. So somebody that knows the history of cartoons and comics, what do you see happening to both of those mediums in the next 10 years? You know, if I knew that I could make some money. <laughs> <laughs> it's still that golden ring that you can reach for, right? You got a right. comic and all of a sudden you're doing something called over the hedge and all of a sudden DreamWorks asks you to make a movie. 
or rights to make for you to make a movie, right? So a lot of people's stuff is getting picked up these days just as IP to possibly do something with it. I don't know. I mean, I love a print newspaper because professionally I'm an archivist. You can pick it up. It doesn't change. It doesn't go away. You buy it. You own it. It doesn't disappear. You want to clip it out. Uh, what you can't see off screen is I've got um, a bunch of filing, not filing cabinets and um, milk crates filled with clippings of various subject headings. And I have that at work too. They're just medical, military medical subject headings. Um, those are vertical files, but again, you know, you, they're at the risk of flood and stuff like that. But if you go to the Billy Ireland Library, you can, or the, that's at Ohio State or the Michigan State Comic Art Collection, you can go through these files of clipped comics or clipped articles or Sunday sections, and they still exist. That's not going to be necessarily true for anything that's on the web these days. So I've sort of drifted from your question, but I have no idea how people are going to monetize this. Webtoon and webcomics is a good example, but is that, you know, sustainable? I mean, it's like anything else. When everybody floods the market, there's only enough money for the top 50, 100 people and stuff. Mm. Um, Publishers Weekly um, does a podcast called More to Come, and Heidi McDonald was just on there talking to uh, Shannon Garrity, who's done webcomics for 25 years. And they were talking about webcomics and how the big push right now is to actually publish them in print. Print is not dead. It's not going away. It's going to metamorphose. Some, all it takes is some rich guy who decides he wants to publish, you know, like Hearst, who wants to publish comic strips. And all of a sudden, you know, they're revitalized. Pretty much the way it's, you know, it started in the um, early days of the 1890s through the 1910s. It was circulation battles and, you know, something like that in a different format could happen again. But yeah, it's hard to predict. In superhero comics, uh, I was talking to some friends about this. I see uh, an implosion coming there. Um, they're doing a lot of stuff like they did in the 1980s with flooding the market with lots of titles, lots of titles with the same character. Like there's probably 10 Batman titles out now and a lot of variables. And the prices are creeping up to 4 or $5 for 22 pages. So I think we'll see a crash there. And I'll shake out comic stores. And there's distribu- distribution wars in comic books, too, which um, happened uh, 20 years ago when Marvel Comics bought a distributor and ran them into the ground. So right. uh, a lot of stuff goes around, comes around. You see it again, but it doesn't work out quite the same way. So it's hard to make the prediction. Right. Well, it's interesting because if you're looking at the the looking at what what the future holds and it's based off of who are the six-year-olds and the 10-year-olds now and what are they reading and as you mentioned it's it just it, before we went before we went on the air we were talking about just like you know being optimistic for the future and it's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. um it's it's it seems like when you go to a bookstore and you go to a library they have an ever-expanding graphic novel section they do and they are enormous and you know that right. is the future and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I'm actually a big fan. I've got tons of young adult graphic novels lying around. I would rather read these than a current Superman with 40 right. years of current continuity and 90 years of continuity. Um, yeah. So that's a good thing about it. The main problem with that I see is, I was talking to somebody at a Phantom Phantom Comics a store I went to over the weekend, is the kids can't buy those on their own. This is twelve ninety nine. When I was mm. a kid, um comics were making the big jump from 20 to 25 cents and i could you know 7-eleven and just do the spinner rack right yeah Yeah. 
So, you know, kids are reading a lot of them now, but um, they're not buying them. And will that affect their behavior in the future? Maybe. I don't know. Right. You're right, because uh, yeah. they're not collecting them. There's no collector market for those graphic novels as much as it was, right. you know, when, when we were kids, where you'd, you would right. get a collection, you would read comics. And yeah, collect and them even and if you are collecting it, you know, what do you have? Maybe all the Babysitter Club books? You know, that's about 10 at this point. Or, you right. know, Jeff's phone or something like that. I mean, yeah, it doesn't have the serial comeback every, well, every month then, every week, once in a while now. And again, the money is considerably more of an outlay. Um, I'm not sure what 20 cents is now, but it's probably, it's a lot harder to come by that $4 probably for an average kid than it was for me to come by 20 cents. Because, you know, you could find orders dropped on the ground back in the day. <laughs> it's, it's also hard to access a comic book, to actually buy a comic book because they're only in comic book shops. As you said, there's That's no true. spinner Direct racks market, anymore yeah. at the stores. Yeah, because um, I still go to comic book stores. That is not as obvious to me. But yes, it's certainly true. And people do say, where do you even find comic books to me at work frequently and stuff like that? So, Or when I hand them out a comic uh, on Halloween, um, I buy Halloween from the um, from the store. Um, they Diamond started this with a program called Halloween Comics about two decades ago. And they were for your store to hand out. So became once I became an adult homeowner, I would buy the packs from the store and then hand them out to the kids at my house. So I'm still doing that. It cost me far, far more money than handing out candy was. I think I spent like 120 bucks this year. <laughs> so happy. The problem is they don't do them for little kids because they expect you to hand them out at your comic book store. So they're looking to get the teens that are interested in, you know, somebody's head being beaten to a pulp. So, you know, I ran... Uh, the Spider-Man book for kids instantly this year. And so see the other Spider-Man titles and I'm there like, yeah, your parents should probably take a look at that, but take what you want. Cause nobody <laughs> told me I couldn't read and couldn't read. So. But. Right. Yeah. It, it's a, where, where do you see also like that, the influence of, as we say, of, of, of manga um, coming into comic books right now. With the Yeah. So manga is the biggest growing part of print comics right now, by mm -hmm. far. And um, Heidi McDonald's The Beat had an article about the 10 best-selling mangas. I think it was translated from Japanese, but the numbers are astonishing. Um, and certainly, many of the people that draw web comics are manga and anime influenced, so you're seeing it come into the American market by Americans. Um, and um, let me put... Let me come back to that for a minute by Americans thing. But I'm going to say that we saw this once before, too. There was a massive manga surge about 15 years ago. Mm. Everybody realized that they could not actually afford to buy 80 volumes of Inuyashi. Inuyasha. And it, they could just read it in Barnes & Noble for free. And I think we're going to hit that again. But there's so much coming out now that a place like Barnes & Noble doesn't even try to carry all 80 volumes anymore. They just have like two or three at the beginning because I stopped in the other day and was asking about that. Because I'm there like, right. I like volume seven of this. Oh, we can order it for you. Okay. So uh, I think that wave will crest, but it'll be a permanent influence. Um, but what's interesting is I went to a couple of book talks here around D.C., from local people that I had never heard of because one of them goes by the name Snail Lords and the other by Uru-chan. 
and they both have webtoons. But with webtoons, it's set free of geography. So I had no idea they were local cartoonists. Um, somebody, you know, they were just signing locally. So I went to both of them. Um, and, uh, you know, I really enjoyed their stuff. You know, it's aimed significantly. I'm 58. It's aimed more at, you know, 24, 18 to 24 year olds. But it's nice, competent uh, comics. So, you know, I enjoyed them, even if it, I don't really need to be read about um, yet one more set of superpowered students going to a school, which was uh, unordinary, but I enjoyed it. You know, it was just fine. And then a couple of days ago, I went uh, to um, more traditional comic people. Uh, Jamie Noguchi was speaking about his um, volume two of uh, School for Extraterrestrial Girls, which he's doing with uh, author Jeremy Whitley. And that's aimed at 12 year olds, uh, probably girls, but you know, I liked it a lot too. Yeah, I had a great time mm -hmm. sitting, listening to him talk about it and the decisions he made about drawing and what they decided to include. So, yeah, um, field will keep changing. It'll keep growing. It'll keep metamorphosing. And, you know, we're not even talking about animation now because animation is so big and such a side. It is part of sequential art. And writers right. are cartoonists, are comic book artists, et cetera, et cetera. But they have their own big, massive history and plenty of competent people that deal with that. So. Yeah. I think they'll actually make it a living on magazines. Animation magazine still publishes. <laughs> right. And now we didn't talk a lot about this yet, but like we're with, with the advent of independent publishing and self-publishing, it's kind of democratized the ability for somebody to tell their own stories or, or make their own comics. Where do you see, what, what would be some of your advice to somebody that would say, if they asked you for advice, what would what would be what what would be your solicited advice to somebody that that asked you how can I how can I get above the noise? The people I've known who have been successes live and breathe drawing and cartooning. It's what matters most to them, and they do it so long that they get better at it. And if you fall down, try again. Bill Watterson was an editorial cartoonist. And then had a failed pitch before Calvin and Hobbes. Pitched Calvin and Hobbes and had to revise it. Got into some newspapers and, you know, became an overnight success. But nobody's an overnight success. Mm. So you have to keep yeah. working at it. I would say if you can, apprentice with somebody. Uh, preferably somebody who's been in the business. Uh, a lot of people come out of um, the old studio system still. You would not expect it. But way back when in comics... Um, there used to be people who would do inking, right? And you see all the ink on this page. There used to be young kids that would come in to hang around with the cartoonists and spot the blacks. They would color all the blacks in on a milk Kniff strip um, or something like that. And current cartoonists like Dean Haspio, they got their start helping Howard Chaikin and some other people that way. Um, you know, you can't be a pest, but it doesn't hurt to learn from the people who can make a living from it. Um, rather than trying to recreate the wheel yourself. But, you know, somebody like um, uh, the Laura Olympus lady, uh, whose name, um, she's from Australia, and her webcomic is the, probably the biggest comic in the world, well, in the English-speaking world at the moment. And she just came out of nowhere on Webtoons. I have no idea how she generated 
that much of a following beyond the fact that, well, she's telling a story of Persephone, but she's telling it in a rom-com fashion and mm. she's really interesting art style. Um, so again, I'm not the target audience for it, but I love it. Laura Olympus. And, uh, like I said, these other two local people, Snail Lords and Uruchan, I'd never heard of them before, but I'll be buying their books. I bought their books. If I had enough time, I'd be reading them on Webtoons, but I don't. So, yeah. um, so that is not helpful advice, but, you know, it's pretty much practice, 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 the old Carnegie Hall advice. And uh, that's right. Um, yeah. And who you know, too. Um, yeah. A lot of my career, which I did not really talk, I talked a little bit about people I've met, but a lot of it is who in who you know. So I'm lucky enough to be introduced to a local cartoonist named Richard Thompson, who was a Washington Post cartoonist, did all kinds of spotillos and stuff for them at a Library of Congress event by my comic book store owner. And we hit it off. We're going to exhibits together. So I met his friends who were cartoonists through him. Um, and then he finally agreed to do um, a comic strip for the Washington Post, which was cul-de-sac. And then when it was time for cul-de-sac to be collected, his publisher, Andrews McMeal, reached out to Bill Waterson and said, hey, Bill, would you write an introduction to this? Or you, Bill, they sent it to Bill, and Bill wrote an introduction to that. So eventually I ended up meeting Waterson through that and ended up working on a book with him. You know, it's just basically showing up, being in the right place at the right time, and, you know, not being really annoying, <laughs> trying to <Yeah>. be helpful. <laughs> so I'm trying to pay Richard back by keeping some of his work in print via self-publishing, like you mentioned. Uh, right. And I know that I do not sell very many copies of it, so I don't have any advice for anybody else. <laughs> One of the great cartoonists of the late 20th century. Uh, right. his Andrews McBeal books are all sold out. The Art of Richard Thompson and The Complete Cul-de-Sac, I think, are both sold out. But when you sell people the spot illustrations he did for the um, Why Things Were column, um, me and my publisher didn't make a great deal of money. Uh, I made nothing. I doubt if he made any of that. And uh, yeah, so For what is worth. well, perfect. Yeah. So, Mike, this has been uh, this has been fantastic. I, I, there's more things that we could talk about, but I think we just ran out of time right now. Um, Up to you. Yeah. But so the so yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, and let us know if, when there's something else that I. You have fourteen hundred pages on on the on the Internet Archive on your book here. I can't believe how much you've written about the history of comics. Yeah. You even talk well, about different countries and stuff as well. Yeah, like I said, I picked up John's uh, schemata, and John was a, a communication studies person before he started getting more interested in comics. So right. he was he's interested in the worldwide thing. If you click on my name there under the title, Comics Research Bibliography, click on my name there, you'll see a few other things that I've tossed online off and on. So being an activist, I've tried to preserve some audio files there. Uh, one of the things when I was in the Grand Comics database, I was also in another indexing group. So some of these projects, that film and adaptation one, uh, I inherited from a German guy who passed away. And it's basically just lists of everything that had been adopted into film and TV. Wow. Self-published one that maybe sold 15 copies. But um, the updated 2022 version is there for anybody to download. And uh, it just shows how deeply embedded in um, uh, about 110 years of pop culture, maybe even a little more now, that um, comics and uh, all types of comics are.
widow let me use some of Richard's drawings so the covers got a lot better all of a sudden. Yeah, that by no means lists everything that comes out in Japan because everything that is a manga becomes a cartoon anime. Oh, and right. yeah. So, so yeah. you know, I just love yeah. the big world of comics. You know, there's like cartoonists who did retro album covers in there somewhere. And yeah. I have a some collection of cartoonists who've done stamps. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a, it's a genuine pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Maybe I'll do it in reverse and you know, interview on Comics DC for uh, yeah, how you got interested in comics and how it led to buying a radio station. Yeah. <laughs>